This is Emily Guy Birkin, and you're listening to Deep Thoughts About Stupid Shit, because pop culture is still culture. And shouldn't you know what's in your head? On today's episode, I will be sharing my deep thoughts about the movie Labyrinth with my sister, Tracy Guy Decker, and with you. Let's dive in. Have you ever had something you love dismissed because it's just pop culture? What others might deem stupid shit, you know matters. You know it's worth talking and thinking about. And so do we. So come overthink with us as we delve into our deep thoughts about stupid shit. This show is a labor of love, but that doesn't make it free to produce. If you enjoy it even half as much as we do, please consider helping to keep us overthinking. You can support us at our Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Or leave a positive review so others can find us. And of course, share the show with your people. So Tracy, I know you've seen Labyrinth. Um, um, I feel like we saw it in the theater when it came out, but maybe I, I, yeah. I, I know for sure I remember watching it at dad's house on VHS with you. Um, yeah. But tell me what you know about Labyrinth. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about it because we had, you know, we were scheduled to record and the thing that comes to mind the strongest, honestly, is the soundtrack, which I adored. I had it on CD. I like invited my smart speaker to play it for me as we were getting ready. And I was like singing along um, to the the five or so Bowie songs that he wrote specifically for the soundtrack um, that I just (laughs) really enjoyed. So the things I remember about it you know, the most clearly from those early days when we were watching it as kids was, um, is honestly David Bowie's costume. Like, no, there was some, um, awakening. Yeah. I guess that's the word for it. (laughs) Like company. (laughs) I also like, apparently I have a thing for men in eye makeup because, you know, um, Mr. Spock was mm-hmm. my first TV crush. So, mm-hmm. and Nimoy was wearing that like kind of blue eyeshadow mm-hmm. and, um, and Bowie's got some serious he, eye makeup. He's going rocking on. some serious eye makeup. Yeah. And, um, and I really, really, I mean, of course the pants and the cod piece, I think had a lot to do with my awakening, but I think the eye makeup didn't hurt, didn't hurt yeah. for me. And that weird wig. Um, and that the thing with the, the spheres, like mm-hmm. the, the way the, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Like juggling basically. Yeah. But it's not because they stay on his hands. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so cool. I met a woman when I was a prospective student at my, at Oberlin. Like we, we went to like prospective students day and she had like practiced that and could do it and like pulled it Mm -hmm. because of that movie. And I just thought that was amazing ever. So yeah, I, I know you know this, but uh, that wasn't Bowie. That was like, I know, I know. Yeah, it was yeah. a guy behind him. And there's a part of me that is glad that there is at least one thing that Bowie can't do. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty remarkable. Yeah, so I mean, those are like those are the things, that, and there were like specific moments that kind mm-hmm. of shine out as like bright lights, like the the riddle between the two door knockers. Mm-hmm. One always tells the truth, and one and like trying to figure out that riddle mm-hmm. and how exciting that was, mm-hmm. and um, you know, other moments that kind of stand like every once in a while. If I'm faced with a big like a, a smell that I don't care for, then I become Ludo. Smell bad. So I do the same. It's, it's in there. It's like, you know, shouldn't you know what's in your head? This is definitely in my head. And mm. I 
I have, it's, I can't say I've never examined it because there have been like different articles that have come across my social media feed or whatever that I'm, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of different interpretations about what is really, I'm putting quotes around that word, going mm-hmm. on behind this fantasy novel that um, I just found disturbing and decided I didn't want to know. <laughs> so um, so I think it's time. It's time for me mm-hmm. to like follow you down this path to see uh, a little bit more about what's in my head. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so what you got? What, why are we talking about this? Why, so, why does this one matter? Um, for a couple of reasons. I I can recall loving the movie from early on. Similarly to you, I was seven when it came out. You, so you must have been 10. I just remember really liking it when Bowie was on screen. I just really, really liked when he was there. Even though I also really loved Sarah and her friends. Ludo in particular was always one of my favorites because he. I loved that he, he was friends with the rocks and things like that. I... I've been wanting to kind of revisit this movie for a couple of reasons. One is because, like you said, it's 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 part of the furniture of my mind. Another has to do with my just complete adoration of David Bowie. He is one of my heroes. And there are aspects of his life and career that are not necessarily heroic. <laughs> So, and this is one of them where I look, it's not that I think he did anything wrong in this movie or anything like that, but there's, there's some weirdness. Uh, He was 38 years old when this movie came out and he's played as being in love with 15 year old Sarah, who was played by 15 year old Jennifer Connelly. Um, So that's a part that was written and he played, you know, but still there's, there's some, some, some weirdness in there. It's the kind of thing you're talking about. Like you come across like, I don't know if I want to look at this. (laughs) Um, so those are, those are the two big reasons. And then also like we've talked about Jim Henson twice already, sort of, we talked about Muppets in space, which came out before or after Henson died. Um, and we talked about Fraggle Rock, but I also just really want to kind of talk about the genius of Jim Henson and the ability to create this world that is, feels so real using practical effects because this is like pre-CGI and, you know, they had some, there's one part where you can tell that it's on a green screen. Um, but other than that, they do like pretty much everything. Well, uh, there's one part with the, uh, the firewalkers. I can't remember what they're called, but the ones whose heads come off, you can tell that's green screen and yeah. you can tell that the uh, owl was CGI, the computer animation, cause it's 1986 computer animation. <laughs> right. Um, and so, and then there's a, aspect of sexuality running through this film that I know I didn't pick up on as a kid that I'm very curious about and really want to grapple with with you. Cool. All right. Well, I'm excited about this. Let's um let's catch people up. Remind mm-hmm. us what happens in this film. So uh, film starts, we meet Sarah, who um, is clearly someone who loves fantasy. When we meet her, she is practicing lines for like play or something um, in like kind of a generic old timey dress in in a park. It starts to rain. She realizes she's late to babysit for her baby brother, um, who is the son of her father and stepmother. She comes home, gets into a fight with her parents. Her stepmother is like, you know, I'd love it if you were dating. You should be dating at your age, which is already a a bit weird. And the parents leave. The baby, whose name is Toby, 
and that's actually his name. He's Toby Froud, who is son of Brian Froud, who worked on this and was one of the the puppeteers. So anyone worried that uh, that little baby Toby was terrified being around like all these goblins? No, those were his friends, or his family friends. It was his aunts and uncles. Anyway, uh, Toby starts to cry. Uh, she's frustrated as any any 15 year old would be having to deal with a crying baby. She can't get him to calm down. And so she wishes that the goblins would come and take him away right now, uh, which is a line from her play slash book. And the Goblin King, who is David Bowie in all his glory and mulleted wig, shows up, uh, takes the baby away. And uh, she says, well, I'd like I want my brother back. And and he says, all right, well, you've got 13 hours to make your way through my labyrinth. And so she sets off. First um, person she meets is a dwarf named Hoggle, who happens to be peeing into a pond when she comes upon him. He shows her the entrance. She gets a little bit lost. She's trying to keep track of where she's going by using lipstick to mark the way. But um, there are little creatures in the labyrinth that keeps moving her marks. Um, she runs back into Hoggle again. Um, she steals his, uh, his jewelry. He has a bag full of jewelry and uh, um, uses it to blackmail him basically into helping her. Um, they, uh, they come across Ludo, who is a giant creature a la where the wild things are. And uh, he seems scary, so Ogle runs away. She discovers that Ludo is actually a very gentle beast. The Goblin King uh, threatens Ogle with um, being sent to the Bog of Eternal Stench. <laughs> um, and so gives, uh, gives him a poisoned peach to give to Sarah. And they... Let's see, they get past the bog of eternal stench and um, he gives her the peach. She immediately kind of falls unconscious and has this dream of being in a ballroom with a whole bunch of masked uh, revelers and David Bowie. She's wearing this gorgeous princess costume with the largest hair you've ever seen in your life. And really big, big, big skirt. Big like, skirt. Lots of hoops. I actually, I, well, saw, I actually saw the costumes oh, at yeah. the exhibit at the Maryland yeah. History, um, the Maryland Historical Society. That's not what it's called now. Maryland History and Culture. The Jim Henson exhibit there, that costume was on display. And it yeah. is big. I mean, it's got not huge shoulders, big, too. But the, yeah. yeah, like big puffy shoulders and this big, you know, those cakes that they would make with the Barbie doll and the big dome yes. for the skirt. Yes. That's the kind of dress we're talking here, people. It's during that scene that we get another one of Bowie's wonderful songs. And uh, she manages to wake up out of it, but doesn't remember where she is. And she seems to be back at home. There is a... Uh, old woman puppet who has like all these things on her back who is like in her room with her saying like oh you need to keep all of this keep your keep all your dolls keep all your toys and uh she real she remembers that she needs to save toby and gets out she's um finds her friends including now uh sir didymus who is um a dog and uh oh what is sir didymus's steed's name he rides sir Sir Didymus is like a fox. Yeah. I always thought he was a fox. And he okay. rides a dog who's a sheep dog who looks like a dog that we saw in the real world before, yeah, right? Her dog Merlin. Yeah. Um, the dog's name is Ambrosius. Ambrosia. Am Ambrosius, yeah. Yes. So, uh, and Ambrosius is a coward. <laughs> and Sir Didymus is so brave, he's stupid. <laughs> in any case, she uh, reunites with all of them. 
they uh, get to the goblin city, they fight off the goblins, and she ends up in the castle where she has to confront Jareth by herself. And she ends up in a like MC Escher painting in the real world where Toby is upside down and backwards and she's trying to find him and, and uh, Jareth is um, like following her in impossible ways until she finally just jumps to get to Toby. It's like a leap of faith and she lands and has her final confrontation with the Goblin King where she remembers the line that she always forgets, which is you have no power over me just as the clock strikes 13 and she is returned home. Toby is returned home and um, she is kind of putting her things away when her parents get home from their date and all of her friends from the labyrinth show up um, just kind of in mirrors saying like, Hey, you know, should you ever need us? We'll be here. And she says, you know what? I will need you sometimes in my life every once in a while. And so they all show up in her room and have a big dance party while the owl that is the Goblin King <laughs> looks on and then flies away. It's it's a lot. And I skipped a bunch of stuff too. You did. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So now that we're more or less caught up with the plot, where do you, where do you want to start with this? So... I want to start with the question um, that has bothered me for a while, um, which is, is this a feminist movie? It does not pass the Bechtel test. Yeah. So the stepmother does not have a name in the movie. The novelization lets us know that her, her stepmother's name is Irene, but we don't get her name in the movie. She talks to the stepmother, but there's that's still even kind of about men. It's about her father. It's about them going on dates. It's about her taking care of her little brother, Toby. And it's about her, like, you know, you know, I'd assume you'd tell me if you had plans. I would love it if you had plans. You shouldn't yeah. be going on dates at your age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's all in service of men. Mm -hmm. The only other female characters we see, character we see, is the old woman with the, the, um, all of her stuff on her back. The pack. Um, yeah. And so she talks to Sarah about all her stuff. So not about men, but, but she's not named. She doesn't have a name, yeah. Mm -hmm. So so it fails the Bechdel test. Now, that's low bar. It's part of what has bothered me is the fact that there are so many movies out there where you get a female protagonist, but everyone around her is a guy. Yeah. Like everything is male. In the same way that you'll get like like the, uh, the Golden Trio in, in Harry Potter, you get a girl. You can't, it can't ever be a Golden Trio where it's two girls and a guy. Right. You, you can, you can never, you can never have more than one. Right. How, however, her resolution and her ability to prevail is something she does entirely on her own. She, she loves her friends. They help her. She helps them. But when it comes to the final confrontation, she says, I have to do this by myself because that's how it's done. And the line is, you have no power over me. And that felt good to me as a kid. Yeah. There's a, I think there's also something in thinking about this, like though Sarah is exceptional insofar as the Goblin King has taken note of her, mm -hmm. she's not actually exceptional in like a Dana Scully kind of way. And the way in which she prevails is also not exceptional in that mm -hmm. sort of way, right? It's, it's actually very human and very accessible. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. To be able to kind of like find oneself and one's footing mm 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even when being intimidated by someone older and stronger and powerful. whatever, more powerful. Yeah. Um, but it's not sort of a, you know, she was the smartest uh, in a generation like Hermione or she mm-hmm. was, you know, like a medical doctor and a and a FBI and agent. FBI and that, yeah. Yeah. And so there, there's something about that that feels at least different than the not like other girls kind of feminism mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we have talked about several times on the show. Mm-hmm. And there is some suggestion that she's one of many. Um, when she shows up, Hoggle says, like, she says, I'm Sarah. He's like, yeah, I know. Yeah, he says, uh, of course you are. Right? Of course you are. Yeah, that um, was one of the articles that that went mm-hmm. through my feed that I was like, ooh, I don't know if I want to know this. So, and then I read something yesterday where it was suggesting, like, where do the goblins come, come from? Because Toby would have been turned into a goblin. Are they all younger siblings of teenage of Sarah's. girls? Of Sarah's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the fact that she's one of many and is not exceptional. And then also her characterization early on. Now, I never had a problem with this growing up. When I was seven watching it, she, she seems like, you know, the kind of cool, not quite real grown up that's that a 15 year old looks like her seven year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it never occurred to me that the way that she responded to her parents was inappropriate. Now, some of it has to do with the fact that like, I really hate the like, I would love it if you had dates. Like, Screw yourself, Irene. <laughs> like, you can have plans that are not romantic, and it's still important. Especially at 15. At I 15. mean, come on. Yeah. But the way that she responds to her parents is, kind, is very immature. Now, appropriate for her age. Yeah. And we don't, like, we are not given the details of this, of how long this, this new mm-hmm. marriage with um, set mother has been around, but like... The fact that a, a teenager would be acting out against mm-hmm. dad and stepmom didn't, it certainly didn't seem implausible, even as no. an adult looking at yeah. it. It doesn't yeah. seem implausible the way that so, she behaves. But all of it feels typical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She is responding in ways that are very typical for a teen girl. Yes. And that's great. That's great. So I, 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 I appreciate that. Like there's, there is an accessibility to this that's, um, that is a kind of feminist telling of what it means to be a girl. And I appreciate that. But then you, on the other hand, you got the, the all male cast otherwise. And so when the, like, like more than half the cast are actually puppets. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, it's not like, why would you, I mean, it seems fairly easy mm-hmm. to change the gender of a puppet. Yeah. yeah. So Ludo could have been female. Ludo could have been Luda. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And actually that would have been really awesome to have a female rock talker with mm-hmm. all that strength and yeah. Mm-hmm. That would have been amazing. Yeah. yeah. Like Luisa from Encanto. But different. But yes. But different. Yes. It, it, just like a different way to sh- like show up femininity. Yeah. Yeah. Now, part of also what I I get I wonder about. So, I looked up what Jim Henson was intending to do with this movie and what he he said in an interview that he wanted to show that Sarah was learning about taking responsibility for herself and her choices as she grows up and learning to kind of like embrace some aspects of adulthood while also recognizing that she doesn't have to lose who she is. She doesn't have to lose the fantastical part of her that, it, that loves 
stories and loves fantasy and 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 loves to live in her dreams. Right, the um, imagination. She can do both. Yes, mm. my favorite way of showing that. Uh, she gets very angry early on when she realizes that um, probably her stepmother has taken her her um, teddy bear Lancelot and given it to Toby without her permission, which is bullshit. Like you can't, you, you don't take people's stuff without their permission. But it was just sitting above her, her bed, you know, like it on was a just shelf. on display. It was on yeah. display. And so at the end, after she, she and Toby are safely back at home, she gives him Lancelot and said, it's time for you to take care of Lancelot now or something along, like, along those lines. And that is like a very beautiful way of showing that she's taking responsibility for herself and for her actions and recognizing the ways that she is growing up while still holding on to her love for the fantastic by sharing that love with her little brother. It's lovely. It's lovely moments. But there's a lot of sexuality in this movie, which we reacted to as children. Yeah. Like we, we definitely saw it, even if we didn't understand what it was. Yeah. And so I just kind of want to go through real quick all the different ways that sex is invoked in this movie. In a, It's kind of odd. So when Jareth first arrives, he throws one of his spheres at her, one of his bubbles, and it turns into a snake. Um, <laughs> but you don't want to spell out the snake imagery for me? <laughs> <laughs> I think you can get it. <laughs> okay. So, uh -huh. so Jareth meets her and throws his dick at her. All right. All right. What's next? <laughs> Um, she meets Hoggle and he's urinating. So he's got uh, his penis another out, dick. Okay. um, which, and then that's also like for a 15 year old girl, that yeah. is like how she's most likely to encounter uh, in the best of all possible worlds. That is the, yeah. how she is most likely to encounter great a penis. <laughs> At some point she goes through a doorway and falls down into a pit of helping hands that are all yet. The oubliettes, which is French for forget, or specifically oublier is to forget. Oubliette is a place of forgetting. Um, and so those hands are holding her and grabbing her. And then it's pretty interesting that the threat is the uh, bog of eternal stench. I had someone point out, and I think that this is kind of interesting, that uh, like helping hands and the bog of eternal stench has to do with like burgeoning sexuality and masturbation. Um, and it is interesting that the hands ask her, like they stop her, they arrest her downward fall mm -hmm. and they, and they, they're going to help her. And they say, do you want to go up or down? And she's like, well, I'm already poured, pointed down. So I'll go down, which I had never thought about the sort of innuendo of that mm -hmm. until we're having this conversation right now. She said down. <laughs> you didn't finish your thought about the eternal stench. Oh, oh, so um, so the bog of eternal stench, that is something that an adolescent girl is probably going to feel very um, uncomfortable about is the idea that things are changing. Things might smell different when she goes down. Right. Um, so that could, you know, be, it's just interesting that that is what they went with. Now, part of it is it's a children's movie and kids are going to think it's hilarious. And there's like yeah. farting noises. Yeah. And there are farting noises from the like bubbles. And also there's something really, really funny when we, when we get there in that scene that you didn't describe where, where like Ludo and Sarah are just like, 
like gagging with the smell of it and starts mm-hmm. to miss is like what i don't smell anything which is hilarious yes. when you're 10 yes just sweet air so like you know this is one of those things where like overthinking another aspect of this kind of burgeoning sexuality is when she is in the after eating the peach peach a peach Mm-hmm. A peach. I mean, it's only because you can't eat an eggplant with a Right, exactly. <laughs> you, you wouldn't take a big bite out of an eggplant. <laughs> and it is about female sexuality, this film. But when she uh, has the dream, she's in the bubble where they're dancing, it looks like a child's understanding of what adult romance looks like. You know, you you wear this beautiful dress. Um, people are in masks and, and dancing. But what's interesting is that she and Jareth dance, but things start getting more and more frenzied among the other dancers. Like the pace? Uh, the pace gets more frenzied. Um, there's some weird, like one of the masks has, or several of them have a long nose and you see someone kind of like, um, I don't know how to Broking describe it. it. Yeah, like... Kind of like masturbating. Really? I don't remember yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and watch that scene again. <laughs> An excellent song. And so when she decides to try to leave, she she smashes the bubble with a chair. And um, like everything is coming to a frenzy. She then like kind of floats in the air. And so it really does kind of seem like what it's like to orgasm. Like a build and then a climax. A and build then, and then a climax. And, and then a release. A release where you feel like you're floating. Yeah. So. Um, Jim Henson, man. I know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like once you got David Bowie associated, what else can you do? <laughs> it just happens. Just happens. By association, everything yeah. gets sexier. Yeah. Um, and then the way that Jareth speaks to her in the final confrontation is he says, love me, fear me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. Weird. That's really weird. What is it he's actually asking of her there? And I have seen, so I think that it's reasonable to look at this, especially with what Henson intended, and have it be like, as a child who's going through these, these, you know, very big life changes in terms of family, but also um, like uh, body changes going through puberty and all of that to be a little afraid of it and afraid also what that's going to mean, like that you can no longer be a kid um, and then come to the realization, no, I can, I can contain multitudes. Like I can enjoy those helping hands and that bog of eternal stench and also party with Hoggle and Ludo and Sir Didymus. It's like, there's, there's no, there's no, um, dichotomy there. I don't disagree, but I want, I want to go back to love me, fear me, do oh, as yeah. I say, and I will be your slave. Like, wh- where does that, f- I'm like, well, and that's, that's part of the reason why. So that gets to the other possible interpretation. That's a lot darker. Oh, oh. we would. So, uh, Sarah lives with her father and stepmother. In uh, the very beginning, you see her looking at a scrapbook, um, and she's got pictures on her mirror of her mother, who is an actress. For years, I assumed her mother was just dead. Yeah, um, that's what I. That's dead. definitely what I assumed. Always assumed she was dead. Yeah. If you read the novelization, it turns out no, she's not dead. She and her uh, and Sarah's father divorced. Her mother is an actress, and she is um, uh, dating another actor whose name is Jeremy, and who is played by in that there's a photograph as David Bowie. There's a photograph uh-huh. of uh, Sarah's mother. Mom and, and Bowie. With 
and Bowie, which puts a very different cast on things. Now, it could be that she has a crush on Jeremy because he's David Bowie. David Bowie. <laughs> I was mean, join the club, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't blame you there. But I have not read the novelization. I'm, I'm basing this on interpretations I've read. This is, feels like an important parenthetical. Like, is the novelization, was it like authorized by? Yes. Yes. It was okay, authorized so in contemporaneous. In- mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So it's, it's canon. Okay, yes. it is canon. All right. Cool. Yes. All right, carry on. So there, there are further, like there was like a second and third book that are not necessarily related. And I think some of them were graphic novels, but the, the, the novelization, this is like back when novelizations of movies came out pretty regularly. They'd, do, they'd send, put them out at the same time. So in that, we know that Jeremy is fond of Sarah, that he has taken her dancing and that, they're, that he made a um, comment, not taking her dancing, but they went out to dinner, the three of them, um, and they danced. And he said something about how the paparazzi are going to think you and I are together or something like that in the novel. And she's 15. She's 15. So there is the potential interpretation that what she's dealing with is not just a crush and not just burgeoning sexuality, but having dealt with being groomed or molested by her mother's boyfriend. Yuck. Um, and then that puts Jareth's lines at the end in a really weird context because he says, like, you're so ungrateful. I have rearranged the world for you. I have stopped time. I have done this. You know, like, why Why is what I'm doing not good enough for you? Which sounds like the words of an abuser. And then the line, love me, fear me, do as I say, and I will be your slave, also sounds like something an older man would say to, a, which sounds like something an older man would say to a teenage girl who's always been told she's mature for her age. Yeah. And it seems malleable to him. It sounds too like, a, I mean, it sounds like a Dom talking to, and, like trying to, to convince a, sub, a person to be their sub yes. in, a, in a BDSM relationship. And it's honestly like, it's a little too on the nose because that. In, in a gaslighting relationship, it would be much um, subtler and take longer. But that is like whenever, I don't know if you read, am I the asshole on Reddit? I'm very, really love it. Usually Um, it's when you send them to me. (laughs) Yeah. So um, some of them, and and this is an outgrowth of my love for um, uh, advice columns. (laughs) Yeah. But basically you see a bunch, which are like the, the immediately, like there's an age difference. You're like, Oh God. Um, And the age difference is always in one direction, not the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's where this, child like this young girl has been groomed by an older man to love him fear him and do what he says so like it's a lot more straightforward there and part of it has to do with this is a fantasy and you know if we do take that interpretation she knows that's what he wants from her subconsciously and so she puts it like very straightforward into Jared's mouth so that makes it easier for her to say you have no power over me mm. that sounds like a bad deal to me Totally. It's disturbing thinking of it that it, way. It's really disturbing thinking of it that way because of how much I loved it and how much I loved the David Bowie, like, uh, <laughs> like yeah, presence. And also to your original question, is this a feminist film? Like, 
if that is in fact what is sort of happening in in real life, is that this child is using this fantasy as a way to process and make it so that she can do what she knows is right, like that she she can act on that voice that's saying this is not okay. So she like projects the potential abuser or maybe abuser. I mean, I don't. I guess we don't know into mm-hmm. this goblin king who is scary and sexy. But she can actually confront it and she does and wins. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's actually very empowering if I think oh, yeah. about it that way. It, and it, that, yeah, that's the, the way that I can kind of be okay with that interpretation is thinking about women, young, young children, anyone who has been in that position and how much this movie would mean to them, mm-hmm. that it gives a, a construct for dealing with it. I think, um, too, like, I'm glad you you named that line because I think saying it in that way explicitly mm-hmm. so clearly a bad deal. Mm-hmm. And to your point that it's not it's it wouldn't ordinarily been be offered in that way unless I mean I'm imagining like a adult folks who are already in the scene the BDSM scene sort of mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. this is where they agree to proceed but in a less consensual and a in a less like even power dynamic it would, as you say, it would not be presented so so plainly. And mm-hmm. so to have it set up so plainly so that the person with less power can be like, oh, wait, yeah, that's that a bad terrible. deal. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's something really poignant and powerful about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that brings in, I mentioned early on that I kind of, I need to grapple with the less admirable aspects of Bowie's life. There's only one that I know of for sure that like makes my heart clutch, which is um, there is a story from one of the baby groupies. That's what they called themselves, um, who claimed that she lost her virginity to David Bowie. She was 14 years old. Uh, He was in his 30s and uh, at the height of his his fame. And, you know, he was going on tour. And so he was pretty used to getting to his uh, hotel room and finding a naked woman there. And that's what she did. She just was in his bed naked. This is not like Jimmy Page, who actually like kidnapped a woman, a woman, a girl. She was 15 and kept her for a year. Ew, um, I didn't oh know God, that. It's, it's awful. It's awful. Uh, so it's not like that at all. But it's still like in that power dynamic, you, he had the power. So I don't know if it's true. I found something relatively recently that talked about how the woman who claims that has some uh, like aspects of her story that are not, that don't fit, um, which doesn't mean that it's not true, but just means that the way that she tells it can't be, can't be true. But I very much am like, believe women. So, so there's that. Then earlier this year, I was looking up, um, I found a behind the scenes making of about Labyrinth, which was really interesting because uh, Gates McFadden, who played Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, is apparently a dancer and choreographer, and she did the choreography for this movie, and I had no idea. Yeah, wow. It was just like, it was like when I found out that um, Paul Simon had been married to Carrie Fisher. I'm like, I didn't know those two parts of my like pop culture <laughs> childhood connected to each other. This <laughs> is so cool. Anyway... One of the things that they include, included some of the the interviews with the actors, including David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly, who plays Sarah. Jennifer Connelly was 15 at the time. I always had assumed she was like 18 or 19 and playing yeah. younger because she yeah. looks older than 15. 
For sure. Although looking now, knowing that that she's 15, I can see it, if you know what I mean, as as a 44-year-old watching this. And Bowie is talking about how much respect he has for Jennifer Connelly, how impressed he is with her. But the way he puts it is that she's um, so lovely and so mature for her age, which really squicked me out because he was 38. And also because... I was the one getting the like, you're an old soul. You're mature for your age from older men when I was like as young as 13. Yeah. And even, I mean, I think I was 11 the first time I had an adult man hit on me. Ew. Um, yeah. My daughter's 11. I'm sorry. That I think is less to do about David Bowie himself mm-hmm. and more to do with the way especially in the 80s, although still to this day, we consider it appropriate to talk about girls and women. Yeah. But that is the atmosphere that this film was made in. Yeah. And so there is some weirdness to that as well. You know, they don't sexualize Sarah in the film. Like she wears appropriate clothing and even like the the costume that we were talking about, the ball gown costume is beautiful, but not like plunging neckline or anything yeah, it's not like a, that. It's, yeah. I don't think anybody would it's, consider it immodest. doesn't it's, show it's off not the figure in any specific ways. Sexualized. It's, it's yeah. just a ball gown. It's just lovely. It's the way it's that a, a girl would think about looking pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And, and her through most of it, she's wearing jeans and I can't remember what kind of blouse and like a, a vest. It's very yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a both end is what's going on with this movie. Like, this does not feel as childhood ruining as when we talked about Ghostbusters. Great. That was awful. <laughs> and and I, I will not stop my adoration of Bowie. Like, I, I still revere him. I wish that he could have existed in a world that recognized the importance and autonomy of women. Because he would have risen to that challenge, <laughs> risen to that, like, because I know that he, in the 1980s, he was interviewed on MTV about something and he made sure to take the time to call out MTV for not including black artists um, during prime time. Um, they, they saved uh, uh, hip hop, R&B and rap or like, MTV rap. Yeah. It was like its um, own show. It was like, here's music and here's black people music. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it didn't play until like 11 PM. So like you and I weren't exposed to, to rap music because we were watching it four in, four in the afternoon after school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so like, I, I know he could have risen to that challenge. He also just, did amazing things around gender and, mm-hmm. and gender expression, like yes. long before we had the word non-binary to describe mm-hmm. or gender mm-hmm. fluid or gender queer. Like he was pushing on binaries in terms of gender expression. Yes. Before yes. we even fully understood. Now, let me rephrase that. Before we as a society were pushing back against the binary, recognizing that we were living in a binary, it just was Mm -hmm. natural and normal. Oh, yeah. 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 Ooh. Okay. Uh, There is a um, cracked.com video from about eight years ago um, that I will link in the show notes that is talks about some of this, like about how the, the movie might be about masturbation. And um, it's, it starts with, there's like one, a male cracked.com employee is talking to a female cracked.com employees about labyrinth. And he was just like, let's talk about David Bowie's dick. 
And she's like, you've got my attention. <laughs> and so by the end of it, they talk through this whole thing. And she she uh, she gets up because they're supposed to be in the office. Like that's where they, they're. Uh, um, so she she gets up. She's like, all right, I'm going to go rub one out. I'll see you in a bit. <laughs> I'll link that in the show notes because it is very funny. But it's uh, like Bowie, man. It's, such a, it's an interesting question that this brings up, like since it was a Henson production and like what you said about what his intention was with it and and some of the things we have talked about even in this show where we we see misogyny or or other hierarchical thinking that mm. we don't like we've said like rob reiner was not like i'm gonna make a misogynist movie he just mm. wrote what he knew from the society mm. that you know like he he just did and like so i'm wondering which i'll never know the answer but it's an interesting kind of hypothetical to think about like how much of this sexual content subtext, the sexual subtext was conscious on the part of Henson and the other movie makers and how mm -hmm. much of it just, this is how we tell stories. These yeah. are stories that are interesting. And like, mm -hmm. just as we, as the consumers weren't thinking too deeply into the potential symbolism that we were watching, maybe mm -hmm. the movie makers weren't either. They just were like, Oh mm -hmm. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, Bottom I don't know. Spence is funny. <laughs> like funny. the helping. Exactly. Well, the, one of the things that was interesting was seeing how, uh, when they talked about, they, they realized they were going to do the helping hands, how they had the puppeteers figure out how to make faces. Like that's mm -hmm. another, I'll, I'll link to this, this behind the scenes, um, video as well, because that was fascinating. Um, so like how when they did kid, it, like where they made like, yeah. the, like two hands to be the eyes and mm. the mouth and the, like that. I loved that as a kid. That was and it was amazing. also really, um, like, the, so it's called Labyrinth. And we had that game, that Labyrinth mm -hmm. game with the marble that you had to like twist in different ways. And so when mm -hmm. she falls into the oubliette, like I just assume like it's the game and she, she's the marble and just fell into one mm -hmm. of the holes and had to go mm -hmm. back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was that piece of, um, it's not even symbolism. It's just structure. Mm -hmm. Right. And so well, everything that's in the labyrinth is in the real world. So like she has a labyrinth game in her room. She has mm -hmm. a figurine that looks like the Goblin King on her, right, on her right. dresser. I remember that. Her um, is a little is a little figurine as well. Yes. Um, and uh, Ludo comes from where the wild things are. Like everything is from her room. And so like the MC Escher print uh -huh. that she has above her bed, which is like what happens at the end. It's very well constructed because they thought through each and every one of those details. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was in fact the hole with for the marble and the labyrinth mm -hmm. green yeah interesting okay any other insights you want to tease out or should i i mean we've been talking for almost just, an hour i got a fluff that i gotta share there's the um the two knockers one has the uh the yeah the, that's the ones i mentioned from the from my memory yeah, yeah where they yeah. they have like a riddle so well no 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 those are those are the different one the riddle oh. are, are yeah the knockers one has has the 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 ring in, in his, his mouth and the other mouth one, and the other is the ears yes. ears i find myself thinking it's no use can't hear you consistently <laughs> that and like that's okay i'm used to it when she manages to get the, the yeah she the holds ring. his nose holds so his nose to get the ring. she can put the ring back in yeah it's okay i'm used to it <laughs> both of those run through my mind three times a week that's funny that's <laughs> funny all right, I'm gonna try and recap. I, I say synthesis, but I'm not actually synthesizing. I'm just recapping. So I'm gonna recap what I heard you talk about, and then you can you can fill in. So we started with this question of whether or not this film is, can be considered a feminist film, and I think it's like a mixed answer, is what I'm hearing. Like 
does not t- pass Bechdel test, so not a good sign. On the other hand, uh, Sarah finds strength and bravery to confront fears on her own, not in a she's not like other girls kind of a way. So eh, maybe, kind of, both and. We talked about the intention that Henson brought to it, which was that he wanted to sh- he wanted to show a story of Sarah taking starting to take responsibility for her own actions while recognizing that she does not have to leave behind the things that she loves uh, from her childhood. We talked about subtext of sex in this movie and whether or not that was intentional. And there's kind of a lot of it. There's uh, several dicks uh, <laughs> hanging out and one literally with Hoggle peeing. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the sort of possible references to masturbation. There is the increasingly rapid frenzy of activity in a bubble, which then bursts and then we're weightless. There is also uh, a couple of the interpretations which we get from the novelization, but also from other, sounds like other commentators talking about potentially the Jareth represents a real man in the real world, mom's boyfriend, who at best Sarah has a crush on and at worst is actually grooming or already molesting her and her kind of processing that. And one of the, um, I think, comforting, satisfying consequences of if that's the case is that this movie then provides girls and and others who might be in that grooming situation kind of a model and also says explicitly this is a bad deal and you don't have to take it in terms of love me fear me do what i say and i will be your slave and then finally you investigated a little bit of like your hero worship of david bowie when there were moments when he behaved less than heroically though Perhaps not absolutely villainously either, but rather where he was a product of his time, which was less than heroic. Did I forget anything? No, I think, I think that that's a pretty good. I think what I forgot, I think what I forgot actually in my recap is that this is just a delightful film. Oh gosh. Yes. Beautiful music, really fun puppets and practical effects to your point. This is not like. From the 80s, this is not the sort of CGI fantasy that we get today. And there's something mm-hmm. just charming mm-hmm. about these practical effects and the magic and imagination of Henson Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, from the costumes, including the stuffed crotch of David Bowie, to the the puppets, the, the ones that you mentioned that are on green screen, the sort of fire guys who like can take their heads off um, mm-hmm. and toss them around. Um, and that, that Escher um, creation that was entirely real and done with practical effects. And I, like, there's one, there's one moment where Bowie changes planes on the mm-hmm. Escher. Like he, it's like, he steps, but he like circles like 180 mm-hmm. and it's facing the other way. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just really, really charming. So I think that that's something that I didn't name yet that I want to make sure that we leave our listeners with. I will say that is the one part, um, because I know people have been like that poor kid must have been Toby must have been uh, traumatized, you know, being around these these uh, Muppets. The but but they're they're his family because like his both his mother and father were puppeteers or Muppeteers. But as an adult who has had children, seeing him sitting on the stairs 
um, in the Escher section. I'm just like, he's gonna fall. That's what freaks me out. How did they make sure he didn't fall? So yeah, that's yeah. All right. Wow. Well, this was fun. What are we going to talk about next time? So next time I'm going again, usually we try to trade off, but uh, next time, uh, because tis the season, we are going to be talking about a Christmas story. You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> sure. With the sexy leg. And with that's where the sexy, sexy lamp. lamp. Yes. The sexy lamp trope comes from. It does indeed. So I am very excited to talk about that with you. All right. Well, talk to you soon. See you then. Hey, podcast listener. Yeah, you. A number of folks have been reaching out to us privately with their own memories or deep thoughts about our deep thoughts. Aaron told me that our brief conversation about Poltergeist in the Ghostbusters episode brought back some scary childhood memories. Marion, hi mom, pointed out that Fred Savage's dad in The Princess Bride was probably at work and that we were maybe overthinking that idea. Jake pointed out to us that we had completely missed the negative and potentially harmful stereotypes of Roma people that underlie Robin Hood and Little John's cross-dressing as fortune tellers in Disney's Robin Hood. We want to hear what you're thinking, but I bet other listeners do too. We have a forum feature on our website at guygirlsmedia.com. Come join the conversation. I'll put the link in the show notes. Come on over. Let us know. What did we miss? What surprised you? Did we inspire any deep thoughts for you? Be in touch. Thanks for listening. Our theme music is Professor Umlaut by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Find full music credits in the show notes. Until next time, remember, pop culture is still culture. And shouldn't you know what's in your head?